Well, welcome. What a time of worship we've already enjoyed this morning, haven't we? And as we have prayed and as we have sung, we now turn to God's word uh, to learn from it, but ultimately to be transformed by it. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I want to welcome you, especially if you are new here. We love what God is doing in our church family, and we are excited to have you be a part of it, whether you are a member of our church family or whether God is just bringing you to connect with us. I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, as we continue in our series in the book of Matthew. And as we'll see this morning, this is a chapter that you probably don't hear read at weddings very often. You you don't necessarily hear people use this a lot in their regular worship. But what I want us to understand as we go through this is that there are some vital, applicational, practical truths here as Jesus warns against the scribes and the Pharisees. Just by way of context, you'll remember that Jesus has been warning the Pharisees up to this point. He's been confronting them with their sin. He's been calling them to repentance and faith. And yet at every turn, they have resisted. They have rebelled. They have demonstrated their hardness of heart. And in the immediate context, he's given them one final invitation to believe in the true identity of the Messiah. And yet they have refused. And so I've entitled this message, The Verdict and the Judgment, because up to this point, the Pharisees have been trying to trick and trap Jesus. But rather than exposing him as a fraud, they've exposed their own hearts full of hypocrisy and shallow, superficial religion. The evidence has been amassed, and they have refused the final invitation. And sadly, they have passed the point of no return. The verdict is going to be read by Jesus, and the gavel will fall. But what I want us to see here is that the Pharisees fall into some of the very same traps and temptations that we ourselves can fall into as religious people. And what I think it's important for us to understand, in verse 2 it describes these groups as the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes would have been the learned scholars of the day. They would have had the PhDs in their society, the ones to whom everyone would have turned for the answers to those hard theological questions, those confusing passages that they just simply couldn't understand. They were the professors, if you will, of their day. While the Pharisees were the ones that often oversaw the worship in the synagogues, they would be the ones that would help people understand, here's how the law applies to your life, and here's what you need to do to be rightly related to God. They were the pastors, if you will. And Jesus is warning us here, not only for professors and pastors, but for any person in leadership. There is a spiritual danger here. That by focusing sometimes on wanting other people to understand what we know, or wanting to help others, we ourselves can have our hearts grow cold. That we can think that we are rightly related to God, and when in reality, we are going down a path of destruction and most terrifying leading others to do the same. And so whether you are in a prominent position of leadership in your work or in your community, or whether you are a father or mother who is exercising leadership in your family, there is a warning for us here, not only to guard our own heart for its own sake, but to watch our life for how it influences those who will follow us. And so Jesus is going to warn, first of all, the crowd not the Pharisees and scribes themselves, but the crowd of three specific spiritual dangers that they can fall into. He's then going to give a series of seven woes 
that unpack what these look like and why they are so serious. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. The first spiritual danger that we see here is hypocrisy. You see, Jesus says they are sitting in Moses' seat, and very likely in the synagogues, there was a chair at the very front where the rabbi would take the scrolls and then sit down and expound on them for everyone to listen. So it was a place of prominence and authority that the Pharisees and scribes occupied. But not only did they literally sit in Moses' seat, but figuratively they were taking Moses' authority and speaking with that authority into the lives of people, saying, you must do this, you must not do that. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, don't listen to them. He says, no, heed what they're saying. He doesn't condemn them for teaching the scripture. What he condemns them for is not actually putting it into practice. And here's where we need a warning. We can know and even teach the truth, but not obey it. We deceive ourselves into thinking that the right answers are more important than a right heart. You see, Jesus is warning us that we can fill our mind with knowledge and then feel self-satisfied and self-righteous. That because we know the right answers, we must therefore rightly be related to God. James chapter 1 verse 22 warns us, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And here's what I want us to understand as we begin here this morning. Nobody thinks they fall into this category. Nobody says, you know what, that's probably me. I'm right there. No, we have deluded ourselves in layers of self-deception, built up over years and years of being in religious circles, thinking that, of course, we are rightly related to God. We know the Bible backwards and forwards. We know what these passages mean. We've heard the gospel taught over and over and over again. But the danger is that it never sinks beyond our head to our heart. His criticism of the Pharisees is that they know the truth, but they don't obey it. And that's a warning for us as well. Secondly, we see the danger here of legalism in verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with even their finger. You see, the Pharisees were ones that would teach all 613 laws, some of which were found in the Bible, but many of which were extra biblical. They said, you know what, it's not enough to just go here, we've gotta go above and beyond. And so they were constantly teaching the people, here are the do's and here are the don'ts. You've gotta work harder and you've gotta do more. They would give them all the ritual purity and so the people were constantly being told, you're falling short, you're not doing enough, you need to work harder if you want to be accepted by God. And all those do's and don'ts, the religious ritual and external conformity were pressing in on them, and it became a crushing burden. He used the image of, of tying up burdens on a beast of burden that's trying to make its way through the path, but it's collapsing under the weight of it. You see, not only is he condemning them for their legalism, but also their lack of compassion. They're just going to keep preaching do, this religion of ritual and conformity, without seeing how it affects others. So we can focus on rules and a religion of external conformity while neglecting the heart 
of God. You see, legalism ultimately suggests that we have a right relationship with God by keeping his rules, not by actually having a relationship. I love the way Chuck Swindoll summarizes it here. Legalism is an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting oneself. Obsessive conformity. It's about managing our image and managing our behavior to an artificial standard where we take our own opinions and preferences and raise them up to the level of biblical authority for the purpose of exalting ourselves. We want others to see how righteous and holy we are, and yet Jesus condemns the Pharisees because they've completely missed the point. Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council warns against the danger of putting the burden of the law on people that they themselves could not keep. Beginning in verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. You see, hypocrisy suggests that I can say one thing and do another and still be rightly related to God. Legalism suggests that I can rightly be related to God based on the force of my personality and the purity of my obedience, not based upon the grace that I am so desperately in need of. But the third one, and I would argue perhaps the greatest danger and temptation for us in spiritual circles, is acceptance and approval. That is, we might be doing the right things for the wrong reasons. You see, we want to be known as godly people more than we actually want to be godly people. And so we begin thinking about how is this going to be perceived? Who's going to notice me if I do this? And we begin to change from living for the glory of God, for the glory of self, for pleasing God to pleasing others and getting their approval and applause because it's easy to do the right things for the wrong reasons, working to impress or please others rather than focusing on pleasing God. And Jesus has already warned about this in Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And so he gives a couple of examples. He says they put on phylacteries, that is these boxes that have scripture on their foreheads that are large and prominent so everyone can see, oh, now that's a religious and godly person. They had very prominent tassels that showed, I am someone who is dedicated and devoted to God. Continue on in verse 6. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. You see, whether it was in social events or religious services or in the world of business and commerce, they desperately wanted to be recognized as important, authoritative, significant and admired as a godly person. But because of all of that, their focus shifted from what God actually wants to what the crowd would notice and approve of. They wanted to be called rabbi because that was a position of high authority. And so they're grappling for positions of prominence rather than kneeling before God in humility. They professed to love God, but in reality, they were living for themselves because their identity and worth were rooted in their spiritual performance. Now, hopefully, in just the quick overview we've had of these three points, you see that this could be a danger for me, that I could be demonstrating one pattern of behavior while secretly living another pattern 
refusing to obey what I already know. I could be trying to earn God's favor by my obedience, working harder and doing more. Or I could be living in a place where spirituality is recognized by our external actions and let that become my focus rather than pleasing God and living for an audience of one. But Jesus continues and essentially says, it's not to be that way among you as my disciples, as my kingdom citizens. He says in verse eight, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. What he's saying is take all your titles, your self-righteous positions, and lay them aside. Now don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean it's wrong to, to call someone by a title, whether that's pastor, professor, or person of influence. But he's saying let's focus on our equality in Christ that we are not distinguished by our education, we're not distinguished by our position in society, because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So he says, you're not to call someone teacher because we're all learners. You're not to call someone father, that is, the, the great rabbis of the past, because we are all sons and daughters in Christ, united by his grace, not by our knowledge or our effort. And you're not to call anyone instructor or leader because we are all ultimately servants, and he reinforces a teaching he's already given in verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, here Jesus is providing us with a kingdom contrast to what the Pharisees and the scribes had demonstrated. He calls us to stop being preoccupied with self, because greatness is found in humble devotion to God and selfless service to others. You see, our whole idea of greatness needs to be transformed by the message of the gospel and the example of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was in very equality with God did not consider that equality something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and became a servant and died the death on the cross that you and I deserved. And so Jesus is speaking here to the crowds, not to the Pharisees and scribes, saying this is the reason why your leaders have disqualified themselves. This is the reason why they are going to be removed and ultimately condemned. So learn from their example. Be mindful of the spiritual danger and walk the path of humility. For it is in humility that God's grace is received and God's glory is magnified. So now Jesus has outlined these three spiritual dangers. He's going to proceed to speak these seven woes. Now what I think is really interesting is you remember at the beginning of Jesus' public teaching ministry, in Matthew chapter 5, he teaches what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins with this beautiful section called the Beatitudes, where over and over he says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who mourn for your sin, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But now here Jesus is at the very end of his teaching ministry. We're going to see at the end of this chapter, Jesus is closing his public ministry, and in the beginning of the next chapter, he's going to walk out of the temple for the very last time. And so in the beginning of his ministry, he offers the offer of blessing, the invitation to follow him as a humble, repentant, faith-filled believer. But here at the end, he's also declaring 
an ominous warning of coming judgment. You see, both blessed and woe are statements of the future, of what God will do on the basis of how we respond to Jesus in the present. And so we have to understand that all throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been extending grace. He's been inviting kingdom participants. But now the gavel will fall as the declaration of condemnation is given. One final note before we get into the specific seven woes. Woe is a word that we don't use real often in our society, and you probably have some tone or tenor that's associated with it. But what I think it's important for us to understand is that woe is a beautiful combination of both compassion and condemnation. You see, Jesus is not angry and vindictive, red-faced and wagging his finger in their faces. As we'll see at the end of this passage, all of these statements are mixed with the deep compassion of the heart of the love of God. And yet he does not mince his words for the sake of those he is condemning as well as for the sake of the audience who will hear it, that sin has consequences, that you cannot rebel against God's authority without there ultimately being an effect in your life. So we're going to have to go quickly through these woes, but I think we're going to see that they are very applicable to our lives just as much as they were for the Pharisees and the scribes. He begins in verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. That's going to be a word you're going to see throughout this passage. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. His first condemnation is that they have rejected the identity of Christ and led others to do the same. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that thought they had all the answers. That when the Messiah came, they would be the first ones to recognize it. And they would be the trusted authority to tell everyone, this is the one that we've been waiting for. But they were blinded. Their arrogance concealed their ignorance. And in spite of the fact that Jesus over and over invited them to believe, showed them from Scripture, and demonstrated through miracles that he was who he said that he was, rather than responding in obedience, they rebelled in defiance. They refused to recognize and respond to the true identity of Jesus. And that was bad enough for their own lives. But what about what it meant for their followers? They professed that they were opening the doors of heaven so that people could rightly be related to God. And what Jesus says, in reality, you are shutting the doors of heaven. Because every time the crowds began to show some softness toward Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees would come in and loudly condemn him, publicly confront him, and lead the others to follow in their example. So their gospel of self-sufficient striving blinded them and their followers to their need for a savior. You see, Jesus says, I have come as the Messiah, and you've refused to recognize it. And that didn't just affect you, leader. It affected those who were looking to your example and listening to your teaching. So let us beware that our arrogance does not blind us to our ignorance, that we walk before God with a humble heart, dependent on his spirit and submissive to his word. Secondly, he says in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, proselyte, proselyte. <laughs> and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You see, they would expend great energy and effort to make a convert. 
But the danger was they were not making a convert by introducing them to the relationship with God. They were making converts by locking them down in their religious system of the Pharisees. They began to teach, if you want to be right related to God, you can. All you have to do is keep our rules, obey our laws, listen to our teaching, and follow our example. And over and over and over again, they put the weight of the law on these people's shoulders. And the tragedy is that the image here is of people that are eager to know God. They have a spiritual hunger, but rather than feeding them with truth, they give them a counterfeit. It's a sham. And they begin to allow these people to imagine that they are rightly related to God because of their effort and their earning. So they were zealous for the wrong things and doing more harm than good. They were modifying behavior with a religious system rather than working toward heart transformation through a relationship with God. They were teaching people to manage their image rather than truly being repentant before God with a right heart attitude. Let me think about how this applies to us just for one moment. Let me talk to you parents. Every one of us want children that are obedient, don't we? Every one of us want children that are going to know and love and follow God. But here's where we have to be so careful. Our job is to not teach our children to manage their behavior or to manage their sin. Our job as parents is to introduce our children to Jesus Christ and to reveal their need for it. Your children will not be transformed by better rules or more consistent consequences. You are desperately dependent on God to do a work in their heart as much as you are desperately dependent on God to do that work in your heart. And so I think we have to be so very careful that we keep the end in mind, that we don't just want children that are well-behaved, but rather children that are saturated with the message of the gospel, rooting their identity in God's love and his grace, not their performance and their ability to keep the rules and know the right information. Thirdly, Jesus says in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. I want you to notice the severity of Jesus' language here. I think sometimes we make the mistake of imagining that Jesus was so tolerant and so loving and so gentle that he would never be so mean as to confront someone with their sin. Yet Jesus doesn't mince any words here. As I said, not in vindictive anger, but in holy exasperation with the fact that they have been deceived. You see, they began to say, we can take these oaths, but if we frame it just right, we build in a loophole. That we can say, oh, I swear by the temple, but I'm actually allowed to break that one. But if I swear by the gold of the temple, well, that one I'm on the hook for. What Jesus is saying is you are fools. He's already confronted this back in Matthew chapter 5 where he talks about taking oaths, and he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be marked by truthfulness rather than constantly trying to twist words in order to attain your own selfish desires. Their religious system concealed their dishonest and their selfish motives. You see, they had learned to sin in ways that still sounded spiritual. 
Now, as you read through, and we're not going to go through every little detail here, but you say, this is ridiculous. The one who swears by heaven, uh, it's one thing. They swear by the throne of God in heaven. Well, that's a different thing. <laughs> we don't do that, right? <laughs> we don't take oaths in this way. I mean, this is the religious equivalent to I've got my fingers crossed behind my back so I can say one thing and actually do another. Well, let's think about that for a second. Because we wouldn't like to say that we gossip, but we do share an awful lot of prayer requests, don't we? We do make sure somebody knows the things that we're concerned about that we've observed in the life of someone else. No, no, we don't struggle with anger. Anger is a really sinful sounding word, right? I'm just frustrated. How many of you are frustrated sometimes? But it sounds so much ho more holy and godly when we frame it that way. Well, we talked about last week our relationship to the government. I'm not rebelling against my authority. I'm just standing up for my rights. Or I'm not somebody who's anxious. I'm just really deeply concerned. You see, we have a way of putting a spiritual veneer on something that actually is very sinful. And as a result, we don't feel the urgency to change it because we ourselves have excused it. But not only is that corrosive for our lives, it's corrosive for the lives around us. Because we build a culture, or even a church culture, in which what is really important is what everybody sees. And as long as we maintain the right image, we can continue to sin in ways that are so harmful for ourselves and for those around us. So Jesus calls them blind fools because they've twisted scripture and excused their sin. Fourth, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You ought to have done, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat, and swallowing a camel. He points them to their external behaviors, that they would tithe even their garden herbs. You can almost imagine them picking out the individual leaves of mint and saying, there's 10% of my harvest of mint. I'm gonna bring that to God in the temple. But notice Jesus isn't condemning them for being attentive to what the law requires. What he's condemning them for is the fact that their rules and their focus on them has distracted them from the heart of God. That is, that they could go through the motions thinking, now this is what God really requires. And God, what God desires is for our heart, that we would love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. I think here Jesus is warning us that we can focus on rules to the exclusion of a right relationship with him because they focused on external conformity to religious rules, but missed the heart of God and the whole point of the law. This has been Jesus' point all along, that they're focused on the laws, and he says what God wants is wholehearted devotion and unreserved obedience as a result of it, because change doesn't happen from the outside in, it happens from the inside out. He wants justice and mercy. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 says it this way. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Friends, the longer we walk in religious and Christian circles, the easier it is to lose sight of that. We think, what does God want from me? To be doing spiritual things, but if it is not from a heart of love and devotion to God, not only it is empty, but it is deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are in right relationship with God. We keep the rules, but miss the heart of the law that is behind it. Jesus continues now with the fifth woe. He says in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Here Jesus is talking about their tendency to follow religious rituals where they had these ritual purity things that they would do, such that the vessels they would use, the cup or the plate, would be pure and clean. But he says, you're so foolish, you only do the outside because you're obsessively concerned with external appearances. And so on the outside, it looks clean. It looks pure. But nobody realizes that your heart is still full of greed and self-indulgence. He's saying you look pure, but in reality, your heart is full of rebellion against God. They maintain an appearance of purity and self-discipline while secretly indulging their sinful desires. Let's think about this for a second, because you know how to keep up a charade, don't you? You know how to give a facade, to be fake with those around you to conceal the sin that's really there. And the longer you pursue those patterns of sin, the harder they are to repent of because now you're known as a godly person. You're put in a position of influence. And the longer you persist in your sin, the more you have to lose by admitting it. And so as a result, you'll come here and you'll lift your hands in worship and praise. And then you'll go back to your home and look at pornography on the internet and somehow excuse it in your mind, and rationalize it in your heart. You'll be the one who goes around and meets everybody here at church, welcoming them and, and, and being so kind to them. But then when you get together with those couple of friends on Tuesday morning over coffee, your tongue begins to serve a very different purpose, cutting them to shreds and condemning them. You see, on the outside you look pure, but the inside is still desperately in need of transformation. And that's why Jesus says, you need to clean the inside of the cup first, that then the outside might be clean. That's Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard it said that all you have to do is keep the outside rules, but what I want is your heart. You may not harbor anger against your brother in your heart. You may not secretly entertain lust against your sister in your heart, or else you are guilty before God. But if you are repentant, if you come before God asking him to forgive you and transform you, it is there that real change begins to happen because it happens at the heart level. We begin to serve God because we love him. 
when we begin to avoid sin because we see it from God's perspective, that it is something that is distracting us from the satisfaction and significance that we find in him and in him alone. Sixth, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The image behind this is that you know that if somebody was a Jew, if they came into contact with the tomb, they themselves became unclean. But the problem was that tombs weren't just always in a single graveyard. They were often in burial plots and caves all throughout the countryside. And so as these pilgrims were coming to Israel and to Jerusalem in a place that they weren't familiar with, they might inadvertently touch or lean against a place where a dead body had been buried and then be ceremonial unclean for the Passover. And so just a few weeks before the Passover, they would go through with whitewash and whitewash the tombs that were in the area. That way everyone would be alerted, hey, there's a tomb, don't touch it, because that is unclean. And Jesus uses this image to say the outside is whitewashed, looking pure and even beautiful, if you will, in the afternoon sun. But don't let the appearance deceive you, because inside it's full of dead men's bones. The image here is very similar to the previous woe. Their external appearance didn't reflect their internal condition, because what seemed impressive from a distance was actually disgusting and defiling on the inside. Friends, you can fool anybody from a distance. That's why small groups, ABFs, personal accountability, and biblical community are so important. Because we know one another when we do life together. And so he says, you may seem good on the outside, but you're not fooling me. Inside, you're full of dead men's bones. The final woe is found in verse 29. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Let me warn you that what we see here is a certain self-righteousness about the self-righteousness of others. They say, oh, we see the ways that our forefathers made mistakes, but they were sinful and we ourselves are righteous. They were rebellious, but we ourselves are religious. There is nothing that evokes self-righteousness in our own heart and blinds us to it as much as feeling frustrated with the self-righteousness of others. And so even as you're sitting here this morning, if you're thinking, do you know who needs to hear this message? My former pastor, that friend of mine that I know down the street, you need to pause because you could be falling into the very same trap that the Pharisees and scribes were, thinking, we would have been different. We wouldn't have been nailing Jesus to the cross. We would have been the ones among the disciples weeping. But the truth is, if you're honest with yourself, you probably would have been right there yelling, crucify. Because your heart is rebellious just as theirs were. And that's what Jesus is going on to say is that you are just like them because rebellion is in your spiritual DNA. The Pharisees could clearly see the sin in the lives of others, but they felt that they were morally and spiritually superior. But Jesus warns them that their hard hearts and spiritual masquerade will result in judgment. Because the irony is he knows that they think we wouldn't have killed the prophets back in the day. 
What are they plotting to do at that very moment? To crucify the Son of God. They are compounding their guilt, and the time has passed for them to repent. And Jesus says, all that you are doing is piling up your guilt. In verse 33, he says, you, brood, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how then are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Verse 34, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is warning them that they are heaping their guilt up, not just the leaders, but all the people of Israel, as we will see. And that judgment is coming. And so we need to recognize as we read through this passage that the stakes are so high. Jesus is not just warning us that if you make these choices, you're going to have a hard life. He's warning us that if we make these choices, we might be deluded into thinking we are rightly related to God, only to stand before him in the final judgment and hear, depart from me. I never knew you. And that's the heartbeat that we see in verse 37. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. You see, Jesus is heartbroken over their choices. He is saying that he is going to bring judgment, but it is not separated or divorced from his love. We read elsewhere that tears are streaming down his cheeks. And so lest we think that God is some fiery, vindictive deity who delights to destroy those who rebel against him, we must read his heart and his words here. He says, judgment is coming, and I long to shelter you from it like a mother hen would shelter her chicks. But you are not willing I sent you messengers, but you refused them. I gave you invitations, but you busied yourself with other things. And you destroyed the very messengers that I sent to you. I can't read this passage without thinking of a story that I read years ago of a forest fire that raged through a national park and left nothing but devastation and destruction in its wake. And as the firefighters and the rangers were making their way through the charred remains and making sure that there weren't going to be any additional flare-ups. As they were walking down a particular hiking trail, they came to a spot where there was a, a charred lump in the middle of the path. As they looked closer, they realized that it was a bird that had perished in the fire, literally petrified in ashes. Now, this was confusing to the rangers because typically the birds would be the animals that are saved because they can easily fly away to safety. And so as the ranger took his, stat, his stick and moved the bird away from the path, suddenly he saw four little chicks come running out from underneath the charred remains of the mother bird. And what they realized at that moment is that when the forest fire was raging, the mother bird could have easily flown to safety, but that instead she gathered her chicks under her wings. And in the fierceness of the fire, 
and the horror of the moment, she did not move. And that under her wings, those chicks were sheltered from the fire even as the mother perished. And the reason I love that story is because it's such a beautiful picture of what Christ did for you and for me. That when the fire of hell was what we deserved, he invited us to come and shelter under his wings as the full wrath of God was poured out on his only son that we ourselves might be saved and forgiven rather than condemned. But you see, there's one pivotal point here, and that is how will you respond to the invitation? Will you take shelter under his wings? Will you be humble in recognizing your need? Or will you, in a self-sufficient and self-satisfied way, say, no, God, I'm good. I've got my system. Everybody knows that I'm already a godly person. I'm beyond the need of grace. Because if that is the case, you yourself are condemned, subject to eternal judgment and separation from God's presence. The judgment is written then in verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. I believe this is referring primarily to the temple, but ultimately to the entire city of Jerusalem. That just as God's presence left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 8, Jesus is going to leave the temple desolate, devoid of God's presence, and yet all the ritual religious ritual will will continue. And then in verse 39, he says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus is going to come a second time. The first time he came as the savior of the world to invite people to be sheltered under his wings from the judgment that was coming. But when he comes again, he will come on a white horse to bring judgment and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. But the question is, will we celebrate his coming as our Savior, or will we tremble before his coming as our righteous judge? The difference has enormous eternal implications. This has been a powerful, practical passage that warns us Let us not just take the weight of these words and say, that's good to remember, now what's for lunch? Let's let the truth press into our heart, convict our spirits, and respond with the very humble dependence and undivided devotion that God desires from us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the warnings of Scripture. We love the promises. We delight in the commands. But we need to heed the warnings we are prone to be hard of heart, stubborn in our minds, self-justifying and ungrateful. And so God, as we respond in this final song, I pray that our hearts would be right before you and that as we delight in you and give you unreserved devotion, that then that would make our way, its way into our purity, into our relationships, into our integrity that we wouldn't just be managing behavior or trying to control our sin, but rather we would be delighting in you, that you might receive the honor and glory that is due your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.